Hello, hello, and welcome to this week's edition of The Logos Project with me, Dom Damaso, theology and philosophy major and content creator. This show aims at taking you back in time to understand prominent thinkers, writers, and cultures. We are semi-educated amateurs here at The Logos Project who constantly strive to deepen our knowledge of the history of human thinking. Being, existence, reality. Why is there something rather than nothing? Can we know the answer? Is it not presumptuous to claim to know the answer? Should we even ask the question? Atheism, agnosticism, and theism, which position would be more reasonable to me, a Western modern American man? To truly answer the question, what position is more reasonable? We have to take a step back. We cannot forget that I am a Western modern American and not an Eastern ancient farmer or a Mayan priest or a Gallic warrior being conquered by Rome or Julius Caesar himself. I am convinced that what fuels today's political, philosophical, and religious disagreements is an ignorance of the history of thought. Not just history on a material level, history on a metaphysical level. What does that even mean? Thinking is not something that is done in a vacuum. Sorry, Rene. What seems reasonable to the Gallic warrior is foolishness to Julius Caesar. What seems reasonable to Ramses II is foolishness to Bill Nye the science guy. But shouldn't the standard of reason be empirical evidence? The scientific method? What if I told you that this view itself is based on a philosophical principle that is not the scientific method? It is based on the philosophical belief that our senses are trustworthy and that the universe is not an illusion. Thinking is not something that is done in a vacuum. Sorry, Rene. This is why I suggest we take a step back and look at the history of thought. Since the history of thought is history, let us begin at the beginning of history. The ancient Sumerian Empire is the place from which we receive our oldest historical records, thanks to the clay tablet. Did the ancient Sumerians ask the question we are asking today? Were they atheist, agnostic, theistic, a combination of these? As I'm sure you can guess, they were theistic. Some would say, of course they were. They were primitive, superstitious people, and we live in an enlightened world that has massively progressed and moved away from such superstitions. Let's hold our horses. Before taking a stance, let's step back and ask the question, why are we more enlightened? Where does our progress come from? What principles undergird it, and where did those principles come from? Are we really more enlightened? The seemingly obvious fact is a lot more intricate than it appears to be at the surface. Let's be scientific about this. Let us take this step back and look at what the ancient Sumerians thought. What was their answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? The god Namu described as the primeval waters, gave birth to An and Ki, the heavens and the earth. An and Ki had a son, Enlil, who separated the heavens and the earth. They had another son, Enki, who created humanity. For the ancient Sumerians, the primordial chaos of the waters gives birth to a habitable world. The universe itself is divine, and we live at the mercy of its elements. Saul of Tarsus once said, So with us, when we were children, 
We were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. The religion of the ancient Near Eastern people, namely the Hurrians, Akkadians, Babylonians, and Assyrians, to name a few, were heavily influenced by ancient Sumer. Since ancient Sumerian religion is the mother of ancient Near Eastern religions, let us take a step forward and look at what the Babylonians believed. This is best described in the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation myth. The gods Tiamat and Apsu, salt water and fresh water, gave birth to the younger gods. Unfortunately, the younger gods' boisterousness kept Apsu from sleeping, so he decided to kill his children. Tiamat warned her eldest son, who slayed his father while he was sleeping. Tiamat was enraged and decided to kill her children herself. The champion Marduk rose up and slayed her, cutting her in half and fashioning the heavens and the earth from her corpse. Finally, Marduk created humanity from the blood of Tiamat's allies. For the Babylonians, the universe is also divine, and we are at the mercy of its elements. So, two significant developments in the history of human thought helped humanity move beyond this superstitious way of perceiving nature. The first significant development ought to be credited to the Jews, the second to the Greeks. Through sense experience and careful reasoning, the Greek tradition came to the conclusion that change occurs, and that it requires causation. There is change in the world, and something causes that change to take place. This led to the idea that the world was contingent, and that therefore the divine had to be immutable. Immateriality logically followed as well as unity. This led to the monotheism of the philosophers, to what they called the first changer or first mover. On the other hand, the Jews posited monotheism, arguably via an eclectic evolution of ideas and experiences, which surprisingly, or not surprisingly if one spends time considering the implications of monotheism, led to the principles of the Greeks. Both these movements in history contradicted the polytheism of ancient Near Eastern religions, as well as the polytheism of Greece and Rome, and it laid the foundations for the scientific values that we pride ourselves on but at this point in history, both of these movements have not yet met. So, let's take a look at the first creation myth in the Hebrew Scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This seven-word phrase takes the first step in what might be described as the first enlightenment. Nature is not divine. The creative principle brings into being what was not in being. But how does this creative principle bring reality into existence? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Speech, God's word, the very principle of reason and consciousness. The Greek rendition of word is very telling. Logos, this is where we get the word logic. Logos means word, reasonability, science. We find it at the end of so many of our disciplines, biology, psychology, epistemology, phenomenology, and geology, name a few. In other words, the origin principle brings forth the world through the reason principle. And God saw that it was good. A world brought forth through reasonability is a world that is good. It is good because its order is observed 
through its causal patterns. The ideas in this text, as well as the Greek insights that came from the School of Athens, are what our Western civilization is founded upon. Out of these came the modern sciences. Now, to cater to any atheistic or agnostic listener, let us assume that the above observations about why there is something rather than nothing are simply conjecture, opinions, or simply the slightest tip of an unattainable knowledge. One might say, what we know is a drop, what we don't know is an ocean. But again, let us take a step back. Let us not agree with any of the statements above, but simply study the historical development of thought in humanity's history. I will refrain from elaborating on the observation that something being a speck of the truth instead of the whole truth, which is most definitely true concerning this topic, is not the same thing as our ability to know truth. Can we know any of it? I'm sure one is familiar with the contradiction in the statement, nothing is for certain. He created them in his image and likeness, and God saw that it was very good. Image and likeness. This language contains an extremely specific idea when read in its ancient Near Eastern context. And this idea has fascinating consequences. In the ancient Near East, in the houses of those who lived on the land, were images of the ruling king. Therefore, in this text, man is the vicar made in the image of the king. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God is telling man to rule over creation as king. Now, all men are created in the image of God. This is fundamentally opposed to the Mesopotamian polytheistic view where kings, or the ruling class in general, would be descendants of the gods. This gave them a divine authority and a higher level of dignity as opposed to everyone else. We take for granted today that all people are created equal, but back then it was definitely not the case. This text is bringing something utterly new to the table. I'm going to close this episode with a short comment on the structure of this creation narrative. And then, next week, we're going to ask the question, where did these ancient Jewish texts come from? The first three chapters of Genesis, which deal with the very question that this episode is concerned with, have a very interesting structure, a sevenfold structure. Jeff Morrow puts it succinctly in his paper, Creation as Temple Building and Work as Liturgy in Genesis 1-3. through Quote, Genesis 1-1 contains seven words. Genesis 1-2 has 14 words. Furthermore, Significant words in this passage occur in multiples of seven. God, 35 times. Earth, 21 times. Heavens, 21 times. And it was so, seven times. And God saw that it was good, seven times. Gordon Winham observes, The number seven dominates this opening chapter in a strange way. Winham notes further that Genesis 2, 1-3, makes reference to the seventh day three times, in three separate sentences composed of seven words each. In order to retain this sevenfold structure, certain formulae are actually omitted where we might expect them, namely the fulfillment formula in one twenty, the description of the act in one nine, and the approval formula in one six through eight. 
The significance of these omissions is underscored by the fact that in the Septuagint, these missing formulae are included. The careful attention to a sevenfold structure indicates that Genesis, in its final form, is a liturgical text. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget to leave us a review. If you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash the Logos Project. L-O-G-O-S Project. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you guys next week.